Jeremiah chapter 28. We've been studying the book of Jeremiah for the last several months, and uh, Jeremiah prophesied before the fall of the southern kingdom of Israel, known as Judah. Uh, there were actually several falls in the process of falling, several times that they were conquered <clears throat> before they were finally carried away captive uh, into Babylon and the city was destroyed. And you have a succession of kings. When Jeremiah began his prophetic ministry, he began under the good king Josiah, uh, who sought to bring about a, a biblical reformation and the uh, reestablishing of the correct worship in the temple, the calling of the people together to observe the Passover and this type thing. But King Josiah went out uh, and met the king of Egypt, Pharaoh Necho, in war and was killed in 609 B.C. And then you had a quick succession of other kings. The, the one that succeeded Josiah was Jehoahaz, who only lasted three months, and he was removed by uh, Necho, and a vassal king was set up. And uh, in effect, they were subject to Egypt. The vassal king was Jehoiakim. But then in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar II came to the throne in Babylon, and uh, he defeated the other superpower, the Egyptians, and at this point, God's word to his people there by the prophet Jeremiah was that they should submit to the vassalage of Babylon, to the king of Babylon, which was now the major power. But Jehoiakim submitted initially, and during that initial submitment, Daniel and some other uh, Israelites were carried away to Babylon to be raised there. Then he began to again flirt with uh, rebellion, uh, joining hands with Egypt, uh, in effect, uh, against uh, uh, Babylonia and beginning to rebel. And uh, in 598, in December, the Babylonians came and besieged the city. Jehoiakim, the king, died, and Jehoiachin reigned in his stead for three months. The city fell in March, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar deported Jehoiachin and his court to Babylon. Also, uh, Ezekiel went into captivity in Babylon at that time. Then he set up Zedekiah. Nebuchadnezzar set up Zedekiah as the vassal king over Judah. And uh, the Babylonians pillaged the temple of the Lord and took away uh, some of the vessels of the temple along with these captives. Zedekiah, again, uh, begins to court Egypt's favor. And uh, Jeremiah is sent to this new king with the same message, to submit. We have this in the 27th chapter of Jeremiah in the 12th verse. I spake also to Zedekiah, king of Judah, 
according to all these words, saying, Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him and his people. He said, If you do that, God will allow you to remain in the land. If you do not do that, you'll be carried away captive for 70 years. And to dramatize his message, God had Jeremiah make a wooden yoke. Chapter 27, verse 2. Thus saith the Lord to me, Make thee bonds and yokes, and put them upon thy neck. And so Jeremiah goes around carrying this yoke on his shoulders to act out his message. They were to come under to the yoke of the king of Babylon. False prophets kept stirring the waters. False prophets kept saying, uh, No, don't do that. Uh, that the Lord is going to uh, deliver us from Babylon and so on. And one of, the, one of the strongest of these was a man by the name of Hananiah. And we meet him in the 28th chapter of Jeremiah. First we have the prophecy of peace by Hananiah in verses 1 through 4. It came to pass that the same year, in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah in the fourth year and in the fifth month that Hananiah, the son of Asia, the prophet, which was of Gibeon, spake unto me, Jeremiah, in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priests and of the people, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, saying, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. So here's this prophecy of peace. I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Apparently, as Jeremiah goes into the temple wearing this yoke, it arouses Hananiah. And he boldly stands up and, and says, That yoke is going to be broken, is broken, thus saith the Lord. And uh, he also prophesies of the bringing again of the vessels and of the captives. Verse 3, Within two full years will I bring again into this place all the vessels of the Lord's house that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried them to Babylon. And I will bring again to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, with all the captives of Judah that went into Babylon, saith the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Here's prophecy. Jeremiah proposes a test uh, at this point, the proposal of a test to ascertain which prophet is speaking the truth. That'd be real helpful, wouldn't it? Because our day is a day that there's so many false prophets around. Our nation is flooded with them. The world's flooded with them. And if we could come up with a test that would help us discern truth from error, Jeremiah proposes a test. He first speaks of the pleasure he would have if this prophecy were true. He says... Uh, in verse 6, even the prophet Jeremiah said, Amen. The Lord do so. The Lord perform thy words which thou hast prophesied to bring again the vessels of the Lord's house and all that is carried away captive from Babylon into this place. It said, Nothing would please me more. It would thrill my heart. Nevertheless, I don't believe it's true. And he proposes a test of its truth. In uh, the 23rd chapter, we had a previous encounter with these false prophets. And uh, in the 23rd chapter, the 
test given there had to do with the consequence of the teaching. If you look at Jeremiah 23, verse 16, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Hearken not unto the words of the prophets that prophesy unto you. They make you vain. They speak a vision of their own heart, and not out of the mouth of the Lord. They say still unto them that despise me, The Lord hath said, Ye shall have peace. And they say to everyone that walketh after the imagination of his own heart, No evil shall come to you. Uh, God says that the characteristic of a false prophet is he says to the man who despises God and who is walking contrary to God's revealed will, you will have peace. No harm will come to you. And uh, by way of contrast, so the consequences are in a sense that you comfort a man in his sin. By way of contrast, the true prophet, says God in verse 22, of that 23rd chapter, if they had stood in my counsel and had caused my people to hear my words, then they should have turned them from their evil way and from the evil of their doings. And then in uh, verse 29, is not my word like a fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? In other words, uh, instead of comforting a man in his sin, the true prophet convicts a man of his sin and converts him, turns him from that path of sin so that he departs from evil. Uh, The consequences of the teaching, does it comfort a man in his sin or does it convict him and convert him? That was one test. But now Jeremiah proposes a second test in the 28th chapter. And this test, incidentally, we applied that test to some false teaching that's very current in our day when we looked at that chapter. We applied it to the bestseller, Life After Life, by the physician Raymond Moody. And uh, uh, as he's done research into those who have supposedly died, had out-of-body experiences where they have uh, had a consciousness when they were apparently dead, then they've come back to life, and they've told of meeting a being of light. And this being of light Uh, would ask them, uh, what have you done with your life to show me? But, he said, uh, they all, the being all seem to agree, does not direct the question to them to accuse or to threaten them, for they still feel the total love and acceptance coming from the light, no matter what their answer may be. In other words, They comfort a man in his sin. Where there do you have any requirement that a man know Jesus Christ, or that he have the one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, as his Savior? Where is any requirement of blood being shed for our sins, Christ's blood, and so on? It's not there. All, regardless of their life that they've lived, regardless of their beliefs, Uh, regardless of their religion, all feel the total love and acceptance of this being. And uh, so uh, what, in effect, Moody is doing is he is telling people exactly what they want to hear. Redemption without repentance, acceptance without guilt. 
The consequence is it comforts a man, it comforts men in their sin rather than converting and convicting. Now, uh, we noticed at that time that if you do a little research into Moody's background, you find that he's been dabbling in the occult, along with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the great thanatologist of our day, another physician who's been researching death. We find that she, too, who writes the introduction to the book, has been dealing with familiar spirits, as she told a crowd of 2,300 people that she had three of her spirit guides with her all night the previous evening. Uh, this is called necromancy, or trafficking with familiar spirits. This is the occult. This is forbidden in Scripture. This is demonology. Uh, here it is. We applied the test. Now, uh, the test that he brings forward now is not the test of consequence of the teaching, but it's the test of the consistency of the teaching with the pattern established by the recognized leaders of the people of God through the centuries. In chapter 28 and verse 8, the prophets that have been before me and before thee, this is Jeremiah addressing Hananiah publicly. Hananiah, you prophesied of peace. I want to remind you of something. The prophets that have been before me and before you of old prophesied both against many countries and against great kingdoms of war and of evil and of pestilence. They were prophets of doom. They didn't prophesy peace when a nation was going on in its sin. Now, Hananiah, you represent a break with the past. He says, the prophet which prophesieth of peace, well, when the word of that prophet shall come to pass, then shall the prophet be known that the Lord hath truly sent him. Actually, even that uh, would not be a final test, because uh, a, a false prophet may prophesy the future truthfully on occasion. A false prophet may predict a future event through Satan's power. You have in the book of Acts the woman who was a fortune teller out of whom Paul cast a demon. And then her masters had them thrown in prison because she could no longer tell the future. And we've had instances of that kind of false prophecy in our day. Uh, as we had the prediction of the death of Kennedy and so on. But when you test uh, the other teaching that came from that same source by the scriptures, it was utterly false. Plus, many times the predictions missed. Over in Deuteronomy 13, it says that if a prophet uh, speaks to you to depart from the revelation that God has given. And if he shows you a sign or a wonder, and the wonder come to pass, you still are not to follow that prophet. For the Lord your God proveth you. God tests you whether you love him and will obey him with all of your heart. This is very important, though, this test that Jeremiah lays down here, the consistency 
of the teaching with the teaching established, the pattern of teaching established by the true leaders of the people of God over the centuries before. I was reading a book on uh, some of your newer cults that are out. Uh, it's entitled The Mind Benders by Professor Jack Sparks. And uh, he's treating of groups like the Unification Church, the Way International, the Children of God, the local church of Witness Lee, uh, Transcendental Meditation, Divine Light Mission, and Hare Krishna. And he starts off by giving a yardstick. He says, yardstick for truth. I have included quotations from the ancient creeds, the famous confessions of Christendom, and comments from great saints of the church. My purpose here is twofold, he says. Above all, these cults, are one-man shows. The authority for their authenticity goes back no further than their founders. All except Maharishi Yogi of Transcendental Meditation use the Bible extensively, and of course claim their interpretation of those scriptures is the only correct one. It is the Church which must answer these heresies and false religions. I have sought to make sure my interpretations are thoroughly in line with the stance of the historic Christian church. The Christian church has spoken out boldly against those who twist and pervert the truth of God. Many of the creedal and confessional statements, such as your Westminster Confession of Faith, or such as the Apostles' Creed, which we used earlier, uh, many of the creedal and confessional statements included here still smell of the smoke of battle. They come from God's people when they had their backs against the wall. These statements were put together with great care, some of them when the very existence of the church was threatened. Their words are battle-tried. They've weathered well. Now they are brought to duty again in these current wars. Of course, the creeds, confessions, and writings of the saints are not Scripture. They were never meant to rival Scripture, but they are powerful expressions of the Church's interpretation of Scripture. And I use them here so that it is far more than a matter of my interpretation of the Bible against that of the heretics. An appreciation of the greatness and strength of the Christian Church in the past is the second reason I've used the creeds and confessional statements, he says. The people of God have a fantastic rich heritage, and the people of God are fantastically ignorant of it, because we don't know church history. He takes this test and applies it to one particular cult, uh, uh, to a number of cults, but one in particular that I want to mention, The Way International. One of our young college students left this at the home the other day. Power for Abundant Living, a little brochure put out by The Way International uh, from New Knoxville, Ohio. And uh, she's got a, a question writ written on the brochure. Is this legitimate? Well, we open it up. What does it say? Power for Abundant Living. It says, <clears throat> since the first century, Man has been almost totally unaware that true Christianity has as its foundation power for abundant living. What's he saying? He's saying, well, 
Since the first century, since the apostles, the church lost the truth, and I found it. And now I'm going to tell you what it is. I'm going to tell you the secret. That's typical cultist language, you see. The power for abundant living. He goes on to promise if you want prosperity and health and wealth, all you need to do is follow his formula. This is a man by the name of Weirville, who was a failure as a minister and then went on uh, some 20 years ago, I guess, to establish this cult, the Way International, and who comes on with many orthodox-sounding phrases until he says, as he says in his brochure, Jesus Christ is not God. He's the Son of God, but he's not God. That's one of the fundamental aspects of the teaching. He says the idea that Jesus Christ was God was introduced by Constantine. Constantine was the emperor of Rome in the 4th century, early part of the 4th century. You remember up to that point, Rome had bitterly persecuted Christians, starting with the Neronian persecution in 64 AD. You had ten terrible persecutions under successive emperors of the Roman Empire. Uh, Diocletian and others, ten horrible persecutions where Christians were thrown to the lions in the arena, they were burned at the stake to light Nero's garden and all this type thing. But then Constantine was converted to Christianity, whether his conversion was just of the head or of the heart, and he called together from all over Christendom an ecumenical council called the Council of Nicaea, and they met in uh, Nicaea, which is now in Turkey. And uh, there were some 1,500 representatives, bishops, elders, and deacons there from all over Christendom. They came to uh, formulate, uh, in terms of doctrine, the teachings of Scripture. And they came out with the doctrine of the Trinity. He says Constantine introduced it. Constantine didn't introduce it at all. Uh, the church leaders entered, formulated it. It was introduced by your apostles and by uh, even the Old Testament writers, in a sense. It's formulated, but they hammered it out over against the false teaching that was then prevalent. Constantine was tremendously impressed with this group that came together because among them uh, he had never seen a group like this. The most terrifying persecutions imaginable had been performed on many of those present at the hands of the Roman Empire. Some had empty sockets where their eyes had been before they'd been gouged out by torturers because they refused to renounce their faith in Jesus Christ. Others had members of their bodies cut off. Still others had been augured. Giant drill bits had been driven and drilled into their arms and legs or other parts of their bodies because they wouldn't deny Christ. Constantine had never seen such commitment or devotion or dedication. So he was so moved, he walked about the assembly and kissed the scars of these heroic confessors, as they were called. What did they hammer out concerning Jesus Christ, his person? Always we want to look at the place of Christ in any system. What does it teach about his person? Here's the, here's the Nicene Creed about the person of Christ. We believe in one God the Father, all-sovereign, maker of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, only begotten, that is, of the substance of the Father, God of God, 
light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father. Is that scriptural? John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. By him were all things made, and without him was not anything made that was made. One fourteen. the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Over in Hebrews chapter 1, the point is made that God never said about any of the, any of the angels what he said about the Messiah in the Old Testament. He said about the Messiah, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. He refers to him as God. Very God of very God. And of course, we also want to try the place it gives to the work of Christ. Does it have him dying and paying for our sins in full, a finished work on the cross? What does it do with the way of salvation? Is man saved as a sheer gift by grace through repentance and faith, through trust in that crucified, risen Savior as the one who paid for his sins, or does man in some way earn his salvation? The Scriptures teach salvation by grace through faith in Christ crucified and risen. The Way International uh, brought to the yardstick of the great historic statements of the church. doesn't meet the yardstick. It doesn't measure up. doesn't measure up to the Scripture. It's interesting and kind of tragic. Sparks violates his own rule. When he gets around to discussing what we should believe, and he handles the Lord's Supper, he comes up with a novel concept of the Lord's Supper, one I've never read anywhere else. And in Christianity, let me tell you something, if it's new, it ain't true. And if it's true, it ain't new. Just just settle that down in your mind. Uh, we're at uh, 2000 A.D., okay? And the men have studied the Bible before us who believed it and had a little sense. And God did give to his church during this 2,000 years a few godly leaders, huh? Like Luther and Calvin and, and Wesley and others. And uh, so uh, when you come up with a whole novel interpretation of the Lord's Supper, you better suspect your interpretation. <clears throat> the false teaching back in Jeremiah's day was a terribly serious matter, a cause it was going to lead the nation into bondage if they followed these false teachers. Terrible bondage. It's serious in our day. Think of what our nation is facing. If our nation does not turn back to God, God is going to have to judge our nation. Down in Dade County this week, they're going to take a vote on whether to reverse a Dade County Metro Commission ruling that the private schools, not the public schools, the private schools in Dade County, Florida, cannot discriminate and fail to hire homosexuals to teach their children. Cannot discriminate. That's the way the law reads now. Anita Bryant and others have been fighting that and been fighting the leaders who are pushing that that ban uh, of discrimination 
be rem- be removed. She is <clears throat> she is fighting to get that decision of the Metro Commission reversed. This is going to be a pace setter. This is going to be precedent setting as to what happens in our schools of our nation and in our in our nation. How we handle the matter of homosexuality, sodomy, for which the Canaanites who were in the land of Egypt, God said the land vomited them out because of such practices. That God uh, judged them for that and drove them out before his people to whom he gave the land. There's a situation in Dade County. What's the situation in the church? Two major denominations, two of the largest denominations in this country, United Presbyterian Church and the United Methodist Church, voting this year, they'll be voting this year, on whether or not to ordain homosexuals to the ministry. False teaching in the church? What does the Scripture say about homosexuality? In the Old Testament, it was flatly condemned, as we've already said. In Leviticus 18:22-2013, it refers to a man lying with a man as an abomination to the Lord. In Deuteronomy 22:5, female impersonation is called an abomination. First Corinthians 6, over in the New Testament, Paul says that the effeminate and homosexual shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And in Romans chapter 1, you have the great classic passage that deals with this. When it says uh, in verse 24, Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts, to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature, and likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust one toward another. Men with men, working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meet. Verse 32, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. No question of what the scriptures teach about it. No question of what the church's stance should be on it. The persistence of Hananiah, the persistence of these false teachers. In uh, verse 12, Then the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah the prophet, after that Hananiah the prophet had broken the yoke off the neck of the prophet Jeremiah, saying, Go and tell Hananiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Thou hast broken the yokes of wood, but thou shalt make for them yokes of iron. Hananiah went to Jeremiah in the temple after Jeremiah had proposed the test of consistency with the past. And he took the yoke off of Jeremiah and he broke it. And he persists in saying that the yoke is going to be broken. And then God, through Jeremiah, announces the punishment that will result from this false teaching, the punishment to the people who follow it. He says that yoke of wood will be replaced with a yoke of iron because you won't surrender to my yoke. You'll wear a yoke of iron. You'll go into captivity in Babylon. If our nation won't submit to God's yoke, we'll wear a yoke of iron. 
the people who follow the false teachers, whether they're in the church or whether they're in the cults, the people who follow those false teachers will wear yokes of iron sooner or later. And the punishment that would come to the teacher himself, in verse 15, Then said the prophet Jeremiah unto Hananiah the prophet, Hear now, Hananiah, the Lord hath not sent thee, but thou makest this people to trust in a lie. Therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will cast thee from off the face of the earth. This year thou shalt die, because thou hast taught rebellion against the Lord. Our nation is under attack. It's under attack spiritually. Calvin Miller, in writing on transcendental meditation, which he calls transcendental hesitation, he says uh, that the people in America are not alert to what's happening. He says uh, only a few years have gone by since Jonathan Livingston Seagull was written. And most of us now know that Jonathan Livingston Seagull was no run-of-the-mill Christian seagull. He wasn't even a Western secular seagull. Jonathan Gull had actually learned his high-flying from Siddhartha some 2,500 years ago. Jonathan died in his biography, and yet he didn't die, for he merely struggled with his dharma until he became united with the upper levels of transcendence. He was a Brahmin bird, if ever there was one, and such a subtle guru that seven million Americans learned the secret of union with the infinite without ever realizing they were in school. Very subtle. Incidentally, uh, the book by Moody, Life After Life, on the back of it, we have a commendation of it by Richard Bach the author of Jonathan Livingston Seagull. I'm delighted to read straight, honest research that dissolves ancient fear and mystery, he said. Of course, uh, if you do a little research on Bach, Richard Bach, who wrote Jonathan Livingston Seagull, to find out his background, you find he'd been dabbling in the occult and that he received the book by automatic writing. As he was walking along the beach one day, he heard a voice say, Jonathan Livingston Seagull. He ran home and started writing as the book was dictated to him by voice. He wrote part of the book, and then the voice stopped. Eight years later, he woke up at five o'clock in the morning and heard the voice again, sat down, and took down the rest of the book as it was dictated to him after he'd been dealing with the occult and with mediums. We're under attack. And we don't even know it. And it's real serious because our nation is going to go under or survive. It's going to wear a wooden yoke or an iron yoke according to how well we respond to the attack. Christian study, study, study church history. You go get the little book, The Story of the Church, in the bookstore. And you learn something about church history. Uh, read the study, uh, the history of these Christian councils, the history of Christian theology, as it's called. Uh, get some knowledge of that. When we offer church, uh, church history in the Sunday school classes here and the seminary classes, you take it and learn something of this. Have a yardstick to test truth by. 
God has given his church a fantastic heritage. Let's use it. And then share. Share the gospel. Share what you know. Share the truth. Stand up. Let's support those who stand up for the truth. Let's support Anita Bryant. The gays are supporting her opponent, Campbell, John Campbell, who runs 40 gay bathhouses, health clubs. Uh, $300,000 sent from gays across the country down to Florida to influence the way the vote comes out this week. Are we praying about that? Are we praying for Anita Bryant and those other Christians down there? Are we supporting them as we should? Are we speaking up? If you're not a Christian, you submit to the yoke that Jesus offers you or you'll wear an iron yoke. Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Take his easy yoke. Don't fashion yourself a yoke of iron. Let us pray. As our hearts abow, let's unite our hearts in prayer for this situation down in Dade County, for Anita Bryant, and for the others that are fighting the evil of homosexuality there and the promotion of it. Lord, we would lift up those down there in Dade County that have taken a stand on your word, a stand that's in accord with the great historic position of your church over the centuries. Father, we pray for them. We pray that you would overturn that ruling of the Metro Commission. We pray that this referendum would overwhelmingly defeat that ruling and that uh, there would be the discrimination against those who live a lifestyle, Father, that is so utterly out of accord with the Scripture and who would pass that on, Father, as they had opportunity. Father, we pray that you would bless Anita and those others there and uphold them. Father, we would pray that any present right now who have never submitted to the yoke of Christ, trusted him as their Savior, surrendered to him as their Lord, would do so. If you've never committed your life to Christ, why not pray in your heart right now? Lord Jesus, I don't want to fashion an iron yoke for myself. Lord, I take your yoke upon me. I receive you as my master because I know you're a good master and that I need a master. Lord, change me, control and remake me. In Jesus' name, amen.